Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephanie Miller. Stephanie is the Executive Director of Technology Transfer and Research Park Initiatives at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, also known as ERAU. Stephanie joined ERAU in May 2013 to establish the university's first technology transfer office, enabling university research results to become real-world products. In this capacity, Stephanie evaluates ERAU inventions for commercialization potential and markets those assets to industry for licensing, development, and production. In addition, Stephanie advises and assists ERAU faculty, staff, and students to spin out their university-generated technologies into newly formed ventures. In the spring of 2016, Stephanie joined the faculty in the ERAU College of Business to teach entrepreneurship. In her newest role as the Executive Director of Technology Transfer and Research Park Initiatives, Stephanie manages operations at the Embry-Riddle Research Park, including the Mycoplex Technology Business Incubator. Most recently, Stephanie was named the Private Sector Young Professional of the Year and one of the community's 40 Under 40 by the Dayton Beach News Journal. Stephanie previously held positions at the University of Virginia Licensing and Ventures Group, evaluating and marketing technologies primarily in the area of medical diagnostics and therapeutics. Stephanie earned a BS in biotechnology at the University of Delaware, a MS in biological and physical sciences, and a PhD in biochemical and molecular genetics from the University of Virginia, and her MBA from ERAU. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. I generally like to start the podcast off by asking our guests uh, if they could tell us a little bit about their journey to tech transfer and for you, ultimately, what led you to ERAU? Sure. And I think my story is one that you hear from a lot of tech transfer people. I was uh, working on my PhD at the University of Virginia and about halfway or so through realized that the typical tracks of becoming a university researcher or professor or going into industry to do bench research at a, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical company or do biomedical research in some capacity, neither of those appealed to me. I liked science, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to do the bench research that I had been doing throughout my graduate um, studies. So I decided to look for more options and someone said, go check out the tech transfer office. Um, I didn't know anything about what tech transfer was. I went in a little bit blind. I applied to be an intern. I luckily got that internship and what was supposed to be a one-year tenure in the UVA uh, Licensing and Ventures Group turned into two and a half years of an internship until I graduated and had my PhD. 
And one of my favorite stories is I knew that I wanted to stay in tech transfer. So now I need to go out and apply for jobs. And a licensing associate was just getting ready to leave the UVA tech transfer office. So I said, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring. I'd like to apply for this job. And the director at the time said, that's great. Put together your cover letter and resume. You know, we'll um, put that on file. We'll we'll put you in with the, the rest of the candidates. And then she walked down the hallway and stuck her head in uh, another office and said, hey, don't worry about writing up that job description. We're just going to give it to Stephanie. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a great story. <laughs> Um, so that's how I was very lucky to get my very first full-time job in tech transfer. I really enjoyed my time at that office. Um, and after a while, I felt like I wanted to do something different. I wanted to go somewhere else. And I really was interested in the idea of building a tech transfer office. You know, most of our big state schools and many large private schools have them, but some of the smaller schools are still getting on board. So I searched around, uh, honestly, somewhat by geography. I was kind of tired of the winter. <laughs> and I found this small university in Daytona Beach, Florida, that wanted to start a tech transfer office. And I applied for the job and, and ended up getting hired. Wow, that's a great story. And in fact, I mean, I hadn't heard of your university before, and I think they're probably several of our listeners who may not be familiar with it, but ERAU is really impressive. It's the world's largest fully accredited university specializing in aviation and aerospace. So can you tell us, and especially given that you're in Florida and near Cape Canaveral, about some of the research that takes place there? Sure, definitely. And, and I don't blame you for looking it up. I think if you're not in the aviation or aerospace industries, uh, we are so specialized that you, that you might not have heard of us before. So some of the research that we do, as you would probably guess, is in things like aircraft engine improvements, hybrid aircraft, space technologies, um, UAVs, also known as drones. Um, but we also have other engineering disciplines as well. So computer engineering, we have novel, novel chip architecture research that happens. We also are doing some research into antenna technologies, so communication methods, and those have applications in many industries. So most of what I see in the tech transfer side of things is from our engineering departments, mostly our College of Engineering, but we also have research that goes on in our College of Arts and Sciences, our College of Business, and we even have a very specialized College of Aviation. Now, you mentioned that as part of your journey to tech transfer that you wanted to start an office. And that's quite an uh, incredible undertaking. Can you tell us what that was like starting the office there and maybe some of the challenges you've had in running such a small office? Yeah, so it was exciting. It was something I knew I wanted to do. And I had laid out a plan of how to go about building a tech transfer office that makes sense for this university. I was lucky enough to be given a lot of latitude in how I went about it. They kind of said, this is your job, go do it. Um, and I also was pretty well resourced as far as funding went and time to get the tech transfer office up and running to a point where, where they envisioned it. Some of the challenges are visibility across our global campuses. So our largest campus is here in Daytona Beach and is where most of the research happens. But we also have a campus in Prescott, Arizona, 
and a worldwide online campus that spans the globe of our 135 sites. Oh, wow. So as you can imagine, me being one person based here in Florida, it's it can be very hard to get the word out that I even exist, that tech transfer is a thing here. Uh, and that's something seven years later I still run up against as a challenge. I think one of the other challenges that I faced is being a one-person office. I'm the only one at the university that has a deep knowledge of tech transfer, uh, what it means, what patenting means, the process. So I, I do spend a lot of time educating our faculty, our administration on that process, uh, but it takes time. That's that's a one-on-one, face-to-face conversation. Um, one of the things I, I think has helped me out a lot is I was given resources to be able to use one of the well-known tech transfer consulting companies to do some evaluations of technologies for us. As you mentioned in the beginning, my background is in the biomedical sciences. I now work at an engineering school. So we needed something to make up for my own knowledge gaps. Wow, that's incredible. And I didn't realize you had these other campuses as well. So like you said, trying to get people engaged and let them know that you're even there must must be a challenge in a one-person office. Um, have you had to implement some unique tools to be able to do that or um, just kind of, you know, the basic tech transfer tools to be able to do that? Yeah, I would say we use your basic tech transfer tools. You know, we have a website, we have an online invention disclosure form. I don't think we do anything too out of the ordinary. The biggest thing I try to do is make sure that I have champions at certain key locations and in key departments so that they can get the word out and help me amplify that. Yeah, I've heard in some of my other guests who've been at small offices, they um, have made use of champions and that's been the biggest asset for the tech transfer offices, those champions. So that's, that's really great. So Stephanie, given the challenge of starting a tech transfer office and running it, did you experience any scope creep? And if so, how did you deal with it? Yeah, so I definitely experienced scope creep, but I would almost call it a scope jump. <laughs> so uh, about four and a half years ago, I was about three years into building the tech transfer office. And I knew that they were building the first building in our research park. And I was standing in the parking lot with the vice president that I work for, our general counsel, and another one of the vice presidents who was in charge of getting the research park up and running. And we were chatting about the plans, the building going up, when it was going to open, all that kind of stuff. And I thought it was really exciting and, of course, hoped that I would maybe play some sort of role. So the second vice president looked at me and said, hey, you know some stuff about startups, right? <laughs> That's and hilarious. I said, well, you know, part of the the services of a tech transfer office is to counsel inventors on starting their company and, and helping them out in any way that we can. And he goes, great, figure out how to run, run a research park. And we want a business incubator in it so that startups have somewhere to start. And I kind of coughed a little bit and said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll figure that out. Um, so I had one year from that conversation parking lot to the opening of the building. Wow. And in that time, again, they resourced me well as far as 
making sure that I could go out and get the education, get the credentialing that I needed to figure out how to do this because I had not done this before. I had worked in a tech transfer office. I've never run a business incubator or a research park. So fast forward to today, three and a half years later, we have three buildings, including a research hangar with taxiway access. We've had 20 companies involved in the research park, created 85 jobs, and our companies have raised almost $37 million in funding. Wow, that's a great story. That's, that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. Like I said, not a creep. It was a jump. <laughs> it was definitely a jump, not a creep. That's for sure. So let's talk a little bit about some of the inventions that are disclosed to your office. Can you tell us on average how many inventions you would say are disclosed to your office every year? Yeah, on an average year, we get uh, 10 to 12 inventions. We're a small school with a small research program, about $20 million a year in funding across the entire university. Wow. And then given that number, how many would you say you file on? We file on a third to a half of those invention disclosures in any given year. And how do you vet those disclosures and decide, you know, what you're going to file on? And then do you typically file provisionals first or do you full, file full-blown applications? How do, how do you decide? Sure. I think like most tech transfer offices, we do look at patentability. We do a prior art search. Um we look at the commercial potential of the technology, especially if the inventor has some ties to a potential licensee, and of course, stage of development, and if that invention will be furthered by research in that inventor's lab. So your very typical type of um, typical type of invention disclosure evaluation goes on here. Now, when we do decide to go to a provisional patent application, we go somewhere in between the cover sheet, a provisional, or a full-blown um, utility-style application. Typically, it has a very, very well-defined written description and then a few claims, um, but not the full set of claims that you would see in a utility application. Yeah, but at least enough that it makes it easy to know when you pick that up as you're deciding whether or not to convert what exactly the invention is and, and what the claims would kind of look like once they're fleshed out probably a little bit more. Yes, exactly. And then how do you decide what to convert? Is it a matter like in many universities, whether or not you have a licensee or does it depend on if it's a particularly, um, I hate to say hot area, how, how do you decide which ones you're going to convert and not convert? Well, again, I was very lucky in the way that our office is resourced that my explanation to those that control the funding was that if we're going to evaluate technologies up front, unless there's a compelling reason not to move forward, we should see them through to issued patent, even without a licensee. A lot of the data that comes out of Autumn supports that, that it may take three or four years after initial application to get to a license agreement. So I convince them that if we do a lot of good work up front and we don't find some damaging prior art in between filing the provisional and converting, that we should continue that process um, and we fund that. Now, do you also foreign file or, or file a PCT or do you just stay strictly just a U.S. filing then? Um, most of the time we are only filing in the U.S., 
There has been one application we thought had very, very high commercial potential, and we filed a few foreign applications on that, which we are still pursuing and some have issued. But in in most cases, we stick to a U.S. filing. So it sounds like you don't abandon, you know, you convert a lot of things and you see them through, like you said, to the end. So it sounds like unless you have a patentability reason, maybe that comes up during prosecution, you really don't kill things. You don't think about having a licensee in terms of whether or not you you go forward or not is what it sounds like. Right. A lot of times it comes down to a patentability decision. So if we are in the patent prosecution process and we get through a couple rounds of back and forth with the examiner and it comes to the point where we uh, maybe need to do an RCE or we know that we're going to have to put a lot more money into this one to get it over the finish line. We have a conversation with our patent attorneys and with the inventors and try to really decide what are what are the likely claims that we can get out of it and are they worth continuing the process. And I think involving the inventors in that sort of decision making helps them to understand why we might not be moving forward with it. And a lot of times they they agree with it once they once they talk with everyone. Yeah, it's always better to include them in the process because it makes that situation a lot easier to deal with. So um, so let's take off your, your patent prosecuting or patent hat and put on your licensing hat and just talk a little bit about some of the licensing transactions or partnerships. Um, you've been there a while and, and you have um, a lot of uh, tech transfer experience Looking back at some of the past license transactions or partnerships that you've worked on, what might you have done differently if you knew then what you know now? So this is a question I actually sat and thought about for a little while. I I certainly am not saying I am imperfect by any means. I really wanted to come up with a very thoughtful answer that I that I think people hopefully, you know, will will make them think about it as well. And the the biggest thing I would have done differently is to consider the long-term implications of licensing a technology to a company versus the short-term win of getting a license agreement done. So without obviously getting into details, I've been in, in the past in a situation where we licensed a technology to a company felt there was a little bit of a gut check of, I'm not sure if this is quite the right place, but they're willing to license it. They seem like they're going to do good things. So we'll take a chance. A year later, you know, relationships have soured. Things are not going really well. The inventor is not happy. The company's not happy, but we're not ready to terminate that license agreement. So now I'm mediator between these two entities that are not a big fan of each other. Yeah, that's not pleasant. Yeah, so I think some vetting up front, getting a little more information, and also a little bit of trusting your gut when you think about licensing to a company just to make sure that the long-term relationship is going to be a good one. So let's talk about some of your office's biggest challenges. I mean, obviously you're the office, so I I would think uh, (laughs) having multiple copies of you would probably, uh, some clones would probably be uh, something you would appreciate, but I'm sure there are probably some other um, challenges that uh, you can talk to. Well, a lot of my challenges are related to 
are attempts to help professors start up their own companies. And there are challenges that I'm sure everyone in tech transfer sees. They won't be surprising, but experienced CEOs and C-suite level executives are something that we've been trying to bring into our network, people that can help um, helm the company, get it into a good financial position, put in a good plan to be executed. Because as we all know, uh, our inventors don't always make the best CEOs. Some are phenomenal CEOs, but some really need help. And finding those people and having them in your network is, is pretty tough. And it's such a niche space to aerospace and um, and aeronautical. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and then one of the other challenges, of course, is startup funding. As you mentioned, being in uh, aviation and aerospace, those are long term, more long term investments than someone that's investing in a software company or a quick to market widget of some sort. These are projects that take a long time. Sometimes someone is proposing to create some new type of spacecraft, and that obviously takes even longer. Look how long SpaceX has been developing their um, their systems, and they obviously have plenty of funding. So finding funding for those long-term investments can be a challenge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about, again, given that you're aviation and aerospace, I mean, one of uh, a hot topic right now is uh, women inventors and entrepreneurs. Um, do you do anything special for women inventors and entrepreneurs there? Um, any unique programs or anything? We don't at this time have any unique programs to encourage uh, women inventors or entrepreneurs. I honestly am doing my best to encourage everyone. Sure, <laughs> I sure. want all of our inventors to be uh, disclosing inventions. So I am very equal opportunity in that respect. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Um, what about Autumn and organizations like it and others such as LES? Uh, what's your view on them and what value do you think they provide? I find Autumn to be extremely valuable. I have been a member since I first got that full-time job, and I've gone to almost every annual meeting since then. And once I started here, I also started participating in some of the small office groups, both the in-person meetings, the calls. And I thought that was extremely helpful for someone in my situation because if nothing else, you just want someone else to talk to about what you're going through that understands it. And I don't have a colleague here at the university for that. But a lot of them have interesting ways of making their tech transfer office work really well with only one or two people. And finding those little ideas can be really valuable. Yeah, that sounds like for somebody like you, it would be a tremendous help. What about credentialing things like registered technology transfer specialist? Um, do you have any thoughts or views on that? Um, and if you do, do you think it makes a difference? Well, uh, to be honest, I myself have not really looked into credentialing on the tech transfer side of things. What I have done since I'm now also responsible for our business incubator and research park is to get credentialing more in those areas. I felt like I had exper enough experience in tech transfer that I, I don't mean to say that credentialing isn't important, but it became more important to me taking on these new roles 
to seek credentialing in those areas. So um, INBIA has a great one-week course, and now I'm a certified, certified business incubation manager. I also took a course on economic gardening from the Lowe Foundation, and that really is looking at moving stage two companies past, you know, growing them, moving them past where they are. So trying to help out the very early startup companies with the INBIA information and then helping companies grow with the economic gardening. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I didn't know there was credentialing in those areas. I've heard about the RTTP, but, you know, those are good ones for people who are in tech transfer, who are also working in incubators and generators and things like that. I think some other alternative, very useful sounding credentialing. Yeah, definitely. So, Stephanie, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if they could have three wishes granted for their office or a vision for their office realized, what would that be? So if I had a genie, my yes. first wish. And you only get three. You only get three. I've had some people try and get more. Three, that's, oh, yes, that's only three. Yeah. Um, my first wish, of course, would be for staff. I think I'm doing a good job at keeping up with the volume that we have because it is rather low, but it could always be better. And the more that I had help with the day-to-day operations, the more that I could be doing outward facing, going to meet with new faculty, bringing in more invention disclosures. Those are all things that kind of fall to the wayside a little bit when you're doing the day-to-day prior art searching, corresponding with patent attorneys, things like that. The other thing for Embry-Riddle in general that I would love to see is a better visibility or reputation in the industries that we serve as a research institution. It's something that's a big deal to our administration and board of trustees and something that we are working very hard on to show that we're not just a source of talent. We, of course, are providing lots of pilots and engineers and other highly trained students, but we do research here as well. Those companies could be utilizing their talents before they hire them full-time. And then finally, as my job is also here at the research park, uh, I'd love some new research park buildings. We actually have a pretty good demand for the specialized facilities that we have here. For instance, we have a research hangar that has taxiway access out onto the airport. That's not something you can find in a lot of research parks. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I need more buildings. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think those are our great wishes. I I hope you get uh, all three. So good luck with that. (laughs) Thank you. Well, Stephanie, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yeah, definitely. They can send me an email. My email address is stephanie.a.miller at erau.edu. Great. Well, thanks so much again, Stephanie. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. 
whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.